Now, we all know that Martin can metabolise a pint in five minutes, but I bet even he wouldn't turn his nose up at getting free beer delivered to his door. Yes, our friends at Beer 52 are offering our listeners a free case of eight unique craft beers. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF and cover the postage of $5.95. Beer 52 is the world's largest beer club. Even Big Mandy is welcome, but not Colin. He's an utter bozo. Each month, members are sent a crate of beer with different themes. Don't like dark beer? Then choose the light option. Comes with a magazine and two snacks, BLT and crumpets not included. Don't be a cockwomble. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF to get this amazing offer. That's www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF. Hi, I'm Ashley Maguire, aka Big Mandy, and you're listening to What the Actual Fuck. Scarecrow Festival is like the most important day of the year. Daft cow? This is just ridiculous. What the actual fuck? Hey, what the actual fuckers, and welcome to another episode of WTAF of this country podcast. Now, first, he's been carrying around a huge bag of pig shit, but luckily changed the security code to the studio so we couldn't bring it in. It's Neil. Ah, uh, my new pet. <laughs> <laughs> Your new pet? What, yeah, a bag of pig, pig shit? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't ever actually bat. You don't have to clean it out very often because the smell's already there. Win-win. <laughs> Everybody, all you dump gangers now know what to bring Neil for his Christmas present. Please don't bring it to the live show. <laughs> yeah, please don't. <laughs> That's what I'll do. Because I'll change next week. I won't like it. No. Now, our guest this episode is the axe-wielding, blowy-loving, Martin Mucklow-hating member of Satan's Fingers, Trevor Bagstone himself. It's Colin Mace. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Good. How's that? Podcast, I've made it. This is fame. <laughs> this is fame. Oh, believe me. Drama school. If only I'd known this is where I was headed, and I'm here. I was going to say, if there is a, a, a ladder of success, uh, you've now stepped onto that bottom rung. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, How are you, well, Colin? Well, very nice to be here, chaps. Uh, it's, it's terrific to be here. So it's a, a pleasure to have you here. Now, um, we've said to a lot of the people, that, are, especially people that we've spoken to from the aftermath, that you, you're now intrinsically linked to this country forever because right. you have you have appeared in it how did you uh, get involved in this country well there's quite a story to be told there um good. firstly i absolutely loved the show partly because my very good friend trevor cooper who is in fact the godfather of my second daughter right. he uh was telling me he told me all about the kind of birth of this show right back from the beginning with daisy and curtin writing sort of a pilot and all the shenanigans that go into getting a television program made and then he said oh we're, we're making the pilot and i'm going to be in it playing some sort of down and out sort of chap who wanders about the village with a stick shouting randomly so i said well that, that's 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 that sounds like typecasting to me, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I watched the pilot with my daughter, with both my daughters, in fact. 
uh, the oldest is 16 and the youngest is 13 and uh, and we just uh, we loved it and then of course they went on to make the first series and then they went on to make the second series and Trevor was saying to me oh look we're they, Daisy and Kurt and, and uh, Charlie are quite keen to uh, to sort of get people into the show that have some connection with them because obviously their dad's in it and and their uncle so mm. and and slugs and people they you know they've known so Trevor said, "Well, my friend uh, Colin is, a, is an actor, and he he loves me. He loves the show. So I originally went up for a part in uh, series two, which was the part of the other builder. You know when? Um, oh right. Oh yeah, yeah. And does the whole thing with the wheelbarrow. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a tape for them. In fact, I did it with Trevor. Trevor playing all the other parts, filming on the phone, and we sent that in to uh, producer and director. They liked it, so I came in and I met." Uh, I met with um, uh, with uh, Daisy and Charlie and their dad, and we had a kind of audition, and it was an absolute hoot. We just basically improvised around the idea of how the hell we can bully Curtin while working on a building site, and it was it was terrific. But then in the end, what happened was they thought, hmm, that's not really working because if it, it'll be funnier if the person that works for Martin Mutlow is the same age as Curtin. Right. Yeah. They decided to cast a much younger actor, which was which was great, and I thought it was a really really funny episode. So then, when the special was being mooted, uh, I did get sent a script with the with the character of Trev, and said, "Would I could I do another tape? And would I go? I was in Devon on holiday at the time, and uh, would I go up to London and meet them? So I did, and very very fortunately was asked to to play such a brilliant part with such a brilliant brilliant piece of writing. I thought the scene in the cabin was just. Uh, yeah, it was comic genius. Mm. And a very important role as well, let's be honest, because revelations come out of it. Well, I suppose that's right, because it's interesting. The aftermath seemed to be the um, part of the story was about curing uh, Kerry from the hero worship of this awful, awful mm-hmm. man she very unluckily had as her father. And um, one of my favourite one of my favourite bits in it is the scene at the end of season two when they're sitting in the van and he's saying, and I held the dog in my hand, I looked <laughs> in his eyes and I watched the light go out and I felt absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you will write to me, won't you? And he says, have you not heard a word? Of <laughs> That's a great line. That was one of my favourite bits. So then I think there was a need to kind of cure her of that and also sort of get her reintegrated with her half-siblings and... Um, and so, yeah, so in, in a way, you're right. The character of Trev is the person that holds a sort of mirror up to all that. Mm. And it becomes indisputable for her, even though it's incredibly hard for her to to actually hear. Mm. And it's clever because obviously we get the wrong. I think she's talking about Martin Bullard. And so we start the scene with me being incredibly positive about what a one. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's my dad, you know. And uh, and then, of course, it's revealed that there were two Martins in the fingers. and. Mm. He shows me a picture, and then it's like, no, that's Martin Martin. He's a he's a bastard. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's that look of realization on her face, but it's also the fact that the vicar, sort of almost a split second before, knows what's going on because Kerry's a little bit slow. Mm. You could see the vicar knows what's coming, and the look of dread on his face because he knows that Kerry is going to be absolutely devastated by it. Um, just out of interest, which finger are you? Because I don't think it's. A... I've thought about that. I thought, what can I be? And I, and I was, and I, I can't be. I don't know if I'm. I can't be fish finger, obviously, because she mentions them all, doesn't she? She does. Fish she does. Finger. 
Um, I can't remember. So I was never given an actual Satan Fingers name, but uh, if I ever come back, then I shall make sure that I'm... Yeah, I'm good. I actually scoured the episode today to try and find out. I think all she says when she phones you is she says um, Trevor's one of the fingers, but never yeah, actually yeah. stipulates... I mean, you're not Paul, my finger. Middle finger, possibly. <laughs> possibly. <laughs> <laughs> or two fingers. Yeah. <laughs> so how much, um, how much di- uh, input did you have in the, the, the clothes or the way that um, Trevor looked? Well, yeah, always with these things. Um, it's a kind of conversation. So the designer and the costume designer and... The you know um, Tom and Simon everyone kind of is and and Daisy and Charlie everyone's sort of in it so it's a very collaborative thing. Um, he's obviously living. I knew he was living in a hut, so we we tried to create a kind of backstory for him that he was divorced and that he'd gone he'd left the area to go and work in catering in Liverpool, and then he'd come back to the area. Uh, and he got a kind of gamekeeper's job, possibly, which is why he's living in this hut. So he's not a complete down and out, but his life has not developed uh, quite how he hoped. Mm. Um, and part of the reason it hasn't is because of what happened with um, Pull My Finger um, committing suicide, walking out into the sea, and the fingers breaking up at that point. Because I think they all look back or at least I think Trev looks back at the his time with uh, with Satan's fingers as one of the great periods in his life uh, one of the happiest times in his life uh, and Martin Mucklow destroyed it yeah yeah only was he a horrible bully to Martin um but well to yeah to to, to Martin Bullard and all, to everyone really he was a kind of this figure that went around being mean to everybody one of the members actually goes and kills himself and then that kind of just knocks it all everyone has to just go and drift away and uh so they're all the idea i think was that he is deeply affected by what happened in the fingers and that's why he's now his life is sort of slightly chaotic and he lives in this he lives in a hut and he, yeah. he was rabbits and chops up bits of wood and he doesn't really live inside the normal social world. Well, it looks like he's he's off the grid, doesn't it? It yeah. almost looks like he's yeah. just totally cut away from that. That hut. I mean, apart from the fact that it looks like some out of Deliverance, which was the first thing I thought of. And, and he's there when when they what? drive up, and he's 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 just slamming that axe down. Well, the, exactly. Like, the opening thing is quite threatening. If you watch it again, it has it, an element of threatening to it. It does. Is is that an actual hut, or was that made for the show? No, that's an actual heart. I mean, they dressed it, but it is actually a beater's a beater's cabin. Right, Brad, okay. Brad, I think that's what it is. Was that in uh, North Leach itself? No, it's quite a long way out, obviously, because you have to go all around the houses and then across the sort of farm track, and uh, and then it is very tucked in. It is very sort of Blair Witch Project. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'll tell you something, and I, I, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but... Um, as it's just us. <laughs> uh, when they drive up, so I, I've obviously I've met Daisy and we've had a rehearsal and we've talked about things like what should he wear and should I be clean shaven and you know we're trying to make him not look too cliched. So they're sort of touching in on like having the the jacket with the badges on and not like having a, a bit of stubble but not being sort of completely decrepit. Um, we rehearse the scenes and we we do the phone conversations. There's a scene where she's on the phone to him, so we so we sort of rehearse that for her sake. Cause she, and we're in different rooms on actually speaking to each other on the phone. And 
And then, but uh, with the vicar, uh, Paul, I hadn't met him and he hadn't met me. Right. So they decided, and neither of Daisy or Paul had seen the cabin. So uh, they decided that they wouldn't bring them up until they were doing it. So they put the camera in the back of the car. They put them in the front of the car and they drove them. He made him drive all the way up this little thing. <laughs> they, didn't know they were going. They didn't know who they were going to meet. Well, at least certainly um, the vicar didn't. And um, so they turned the corner and what they, what he sees, his first meeting with me is me dressed as Trevor holding an ax. And, <laughs> yes. and of course they know the scene because they've read the scene and they know that there's not, there's no sort of attacks. There's not going to be violent or anything, but it was, uh, it was a brilliant, I'd not met him. So it was a very sort of, yeah, it was a very, uh, it was a rather brilliant thing. And we, they got out of the car and we sort of chatted to each other and then we went inside and we just kept going. The thing just kept rolling. No one shouted cut. So they, they basically shot the whole thing in one go. Right. And then, there was like it was kind of an amazing thing because I'd never experienced anything like that before. Yeah. Especially I'd never met this chap and he'd never met me. <laughs> and and then of course we stopped and then we went back over it, you know, a million times as you do. But it was just a, a fantastic way to uh, to get into it, and it was just felt incredibly real. Partly because of the cabin and because I was meeting him for the first time, and yeah, it was it was terrific. Well, the look of dread that Paul has on his face as he's about to go into the 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 the, the shack, what you want to call it, for the first time, is priceless because mm. he's he's really like, I don't want to be here. I really don't want to be here. No. How how long were you filming there, Colin? At the shack? oh, just the one day. It really just was just the one day for all that. Yeah. So I came up to North Beach for a rehearsal. I think the previous Wednesday or something, and then I think we shot, you know, one one of those just one the whole day uh, on that. They did the car journey on the same day. So they basically just drove and they just let them just let them play. I mean there's hours of it apparently with them talking and singing and playing different bits of music and stuff. And they mm. were just I think the great thing about the show is from an actor's point of view is that very often when you make uh television, it's rather regimented and the script is not for issue, you know, it's it's done, it's locked off. And then mostly because of the time that they have the shots are already pre-planned. So it's like, right, you're going to stand here, we're going to shoot from here, then we're going to come around here and shoot that way, and you just do this, You just do the scene over and over again. Whereas on this country, there's a slightly more, uh, well, it's slightly more filmic, I guess, uh, cinematic sort of process, but also kind of more theatrical because you actually rehearse, you talk about character, you then, and then the script, if something extraordinary happens, you're allowed to kind of, improvise a little bit you know they're going oh we're just you know if that doesn't work if you say something that's a bit more comfortable for you or, or let's push that bit of the story and see if where we go you know so that's really exciting from an actor's point of view because you're just you feel like more empowered and yeah more creative yeah. so i mean yeah it was an absolute pleasure probably the best job i've ever had i think so the monologue oh. my daughter and all her generation all i mean 16 year olds absolutely love it mm. and she's tell them I was in it and she said oh there's a special out should we all get together and watch it and they're like <laughs> so proud <laughs> so the the monologue in in the shack if you like that, that you give I was I was thinking about this today and I think out of every episode of this country that's probably the longest that somebody talks yeah. sort of un, unbroken in the whole of the show was that done in one take or was done in one take. Well, well done, sir. Well done. Yeah. Right. Round of applause. Well, expect a BAFTA yeah, nomination next year. I think they were worried about pace because 
when I first did it, it was a it was a lot slower because it was more conversational. Uh, and then they were thinking, oh, God, we don't really want to cut any of this because we've only got 40 minutes, 44 minutes, whatever it is. So they said, can you just, can we keep all that, but can you just do it a bit quicker? So we did that, and then we sort of made it. So we were just trying to find ways that where they wouldn't have to, I think they snipped one little bit out, which was a sort of a bit of a tangent bit in the, in the speech. But mostly, I think apart from that, it's, it's in, in its entirety. And, of course, because they're, because they're doing a, a documentary style, they don't really want to do cutaways, mm. because, and that's slightly against. So they want is to just have a camera kind of roving around like this, picking up. So in the, in that scene, while I'm talking, and then they'll suddenly move the camera onto Paul, and he's pulling a face like, oh lord, I know where this is going. Yeah. And then it's back on Kerry, and she's like, she looks at the camera, and goes, that's beautiful, you know. So it just sort of, and in that scene, because we're static, the three of us, I think you can you can really do it. I thought the aftermath is just. I think it's one of the – because it's double the length, it's really interesting. I think that was a challenge for them. But um, I just thought it was great. I love the stuff that gets chucked away, like uh, when they're walking past – when he, when Curtin's walking past um, what's-his-name's house and he says, there he is. Oh, uh, Arthur's house, yeah, yeah. yeah. Angry Arthur. Yeah. He goes, there he is, yeah. With the veins, couldn't get the vein, couldn't get it in the vein. I was just, it's, it's like you say, it's a little throwaway thing, but there, that's a whole episode in itself, it is, isn't exactly. it? Arthur going off to be euthanized. Yeah. <laughs> euthanized they, they, they do I'm this. They're yeah, guys, write... <laughs> Sorry, they're... I was just saying, yeah, go on. Their writing is just genius for that sort of thing. Throw those, like you said, the throwaway things. They've done it throughout the whole both series, and it's absolutely genius. We were you able to improvise much? On your speech, because you said you did it all through one cut through, you know, run through. We did, we did some bits and pieces where we we sort of threw it about. Once we once they felt we were getting a bit stuck with it, then we'd mm. do where it was all a bit more. So she would interrupt a bit more, and and then that was good for us. It sort of loosened us up. But in the end, the right as you say, the writing's so good that they just wanted the writing to to live and yeah. not to be interfered with too much. And for me, not to start putting lots of ers and ums and that sort of thing in because it just interrupted the flow. And the and the way that uh, they'd written it, the it just it was uh, it, you know it's one of those things in that if you if you can learn something quickly it means it's really well written. And I remember rather hysterically, although I probably get social services knocking on my front door if I tell you this, but um, I was in Devon on holiday and I came through and my wife was in London working, so I had my two daughters with me, one of whom was thirteen, the other sixteen. I said, "You're going to have to help me with the self tape." So I got my phone. Um, actor's friend and uh, so Lily who's 13 had to be the camera woman and then uh, Florence who's 16 had to be Kerry and so and I said look you, we're going to do this you just have to kind of pretend that you haven't heard it <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah so we, we filmed it on the on our phone and I and I had to I know I sort of had to get it back by the by the five o'clock that evening so to sort of send you we transfer the video clip and blah 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 and uh, so I sat down to learn it and it went in like that. It was like, whap, straight in. I got all the images because it's so rich in imagery that you can just follow the story in your head. You can see, you know, them getting the news about the Donnie Osmond girls. You can see them all jumping on their bike, driving down the uh, down the road, and then him breaking down. And then, then there comes Martin and he's got his, his straw. And he's sucking it. It's all so bright in my mind that actually the speech was really easy to learn. It didn't need... I didn't need to sit and kind of, you know, bash it. It just went straight in, and and I think that's a that's a testament to how well 
how well it's written, but how well it flows from thought to thought to thought, mm. so that it just comes out totally naturally. Mm. What about your accent, Colin? Well, you tell me. Well, I mean, it sounded convincing to me, but how, how did you... Are you good at accents normally? And pretty good at accents, yeah. I would say I've done a lot of audiobooks over the years, and that does demand that you have to characterise, you know, if you're doing mm. a thriller and you've got... Or you do, I, I, did, I started off doing a lot of soldier books when I, when I did them 10 years ago, and all those... There's always a Scot and a Welshman and a Geordie and a bloke from London, you know, they, and they all go off on some mission to uh, Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, and so you get quite used to doing it. But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't find it... I didn't find it too difficult. The The danger is that you get too... You go too far into the southwest and you start talking like that, being down in Devon. You mm. don't want that because that, that that's kind of Cotswolds, Wiltshire, Oxfordshire kind of area is much lighter than that. And um, when I when I did the tapes with Trevor for the Series 2, the part in Series 2, he, he of course, has got it absolutely down pat, Trev. Uh, Trev. So um, I was kind of listening to him and just sort of copying him and just making it quite light and not really like pushing on it too much and you know yeah so it was it was great and i loved it it, it worked so well with that character and with the speech as well mm. just going on a slight little tangent you mentioned about audiobooks i mean i listen to a lot of audiobooks physically when you when you how does it work when you, you don't read the whole book in one go do you is it done over like two or three days or yeah you can probably i mean it depends on who you are i can probably so you work from 10 to 1 and then you work from 2 to 5, but you have a, like a 25, 20, 20-minute 20 break in, in, in the morning and in the afternoon. So you probably get about four hours of finished audio in one day, right. which equates, depending on how densely it's written, but, you know, just over 100 pages. Okay. So if it's 320 pages, it'll probably take you three days. Right. And do you do you, some, do you sometimes, like, fluff the lines? I know it's like all you're doing is reading, but... Yeah, if you fluff the lines, um, you either just – there's two ways of doing it. You either just go back to the beginning of the sentence and carry on, and then they edit it later. They mark it. The producer marks it. Or, which is more common because it saves time in the long run, you if you fluff, you stop. They stop the recording. They go back, and they run the recording up to the point where you fluffed, and then you pick it up again. Right, okay. So then the file is much is – much there's much less editing because you, it's basically just you've got to take out breaths and – sniffs and stuff like that but mm. um yeah you haven't got to keep chopping going back and chopping stuff so it's quite exhausting it's a sort of um it's an endurance sport uh doing audio but it's, it's not not for everyone i quite enjoy them particularly if, if i like the story and and you get into series so i've done um, a series of books by a guy called scott mariani has a who has this kind of hard bitten ex-sas chap called ben hope who um, is a kind of James Bond maverick type figure that goes around solving problems all around the world and killing baddies and stuff. It's quite a good fun. <laughs> right. Excellent. Um, now, also as a as a, a character actor, I've meant to ask this to a couple of the people that we've had um, that we've had on the podcast, and we were looking through your IMDb, and you've you've done Casualty and uh, I think EastEnders and all of the, you know all of the sort of staples of a of a character actor. And it always reminds me of that scene in Extras when somebody asks Ricky Gervais's character, "Like, what you haven't done? You've never you haven't done Casualty? Is this is this in the actor community? Is that sort of a thing where if somebody hasn't done Casualty or the Bill that you sort of look down your nose at them a little bit?" 
No, that that doesn't exist. I think often if you haven't done the bill, you know, at least three times, you're you're considered, you know, you've you've got away with it because you, know, <laughs> you haven't done casual. They go, well, well done for you know avoiding. <laughs> I don't mean that, not in a bad way, but it's just like you're right, right, right. Everyone has done those shows over and over again because I think they used to it used to have to be three years before you could go back into it. Right, and now I think it's eighteen months because obviously they they just get through so many actors on those shows, so many guest actors. Done Holby. I think I've done Holby like four times. Right. Done Doctor four times as well. <laughs> Last time I wore a dress, which was fun. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. Technically, wife died, but she had in fact left him, and uh, he was wearing one of her dresses. That was quite fun. Yeah, they're, they're great shows to work on because they are sort of machines. They are like uh, very different from doing something like this country. They are sort of well-oiled machines, but the people who work on them are just lovely, and mm. uh, all the regulars, the regular actors who are on it every day, of course, are delighted to get new people to chat to and talk to and you know there is an element of kind of being in the factory for those regular actors because it's, it's hard work it's 12 hour days yeah, yeah. on EastEnders it's 12 hour days I'm not sure it is on so they work Monday to Friday they work like 7 till 7 I mean obviously you're not in every scene because you're in different episodes and stuff but it, it's hard it's, they, they earn their money there's no doubt about it it's mm. hard work uh, something else I noticed on your IMDB is you do, you've done video games I have uh, how did that come about well, just through um, – I've got a voiceover agent, which is separate from from my acting agent. So this is something that uh, lots of actors do. Um, so they, you, you can even – you even go so far now, I think. I've never done it, but you can do this motion capture thing. Mm. You go off to some warehouse and they put they, – they glue a lot of ping pong balls to you and they make you kind of – so something like Call of Duty would have been done, I think, with mo- motion capture – whether those actors then voice the characters, I'm not sure because I think the two skills are not always compatible. Mm. So you might look super tough, and you know, but you might have the wrong sort of voice to voice the character in, in the eyes of the, the people that have created the game. But I've only ever done voices. And, you, you again, you do it kind of two ways. I think you either do it wild and then they match the – I think you always do it – you always kind of have some footage to look at of the character – and then you do the voice wild and then they'll match. The last bit they'll do in the animation is to make the lips kind of work. I've just done one recently called Memories Retold. And it's about, the, it's a First World War game. And it's about a young Canadian photographer who gets sort of uh, embroiled in a, in, a, in a kind of hatred between a British colonel, major, no, major, sorry, Major Barrett, who I play, and the father of a German soldier that I've killed. And they kind of, so you, as the player, you, I think you, you follow the young boy, the photographer, and you, and you see all the things that have happened. And right at the end, you get to choose which either the German or the major, the British major that you have to, you have to put one of them to death. And it's like, and they, so they did it. And it happened that every single, almost every person was shooting the German. So when I came in onto the job, they said, look, we need to make the character more unsympathetic more you know more of a kind of psychopath he's lost his mind the war has got to him so that that more people choose to shoot the british guy not the german <laughs> guy because it's not fair it's always it can't always be him and so we, we sort of works on the character and it's quite you do every line you, you sometimes you do the same line 10 15 20 times until they get one that they think they like so you you're in a small room with a big mic a bit like you guys and you're normally standing up it takes uh yeah, it takes a lot of energy. I've done I've done a, a few of those kind of soldier ones because obviously those are the most popular games. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I also did 
they did a couple of Sherlock Holmes games and I played Lestrade, which I really enjoyed. But that was really only the bits in between the play. So you would have some play and then you'd have almost like a movie, really, mm, in between right. the scenes. And, um, and then, yeah, so then we were... And that's more naturalistic and in trying to sort of really bring the characters to life rather than just, over there, over there, over there, you know, yeah. which is what you do on lots of them. And I, had to, I have had to fall off a building in 11 different ways. <laughs> I was just about to say, do you ever have to have like half an hour of going, ooh, yeah, oh, make noises like that? That You do an awful lot of that. Right. And then did a thing where they had each line and you had to, because of the way that the, the kind of labyrinth uh, spreads out according to what happens in the game and what choices the gamer makes. So you'd have to do a line as if you were wounded, as if you were lying down, uh, as if you were, you know, being secretive, as if you were running. So you would do the same line because they didn't know, you don't know which way the player is going to take the game. And then you might be running or you might be hiding or you might, you know, your colleague might be wounded. So yeah, it's, it's repetitive. Um, I've never really seen any of the. I've never seen or played any of the games I've done. Oh right! I took some friends of mine. Have they said I played this game? Played this game yesterday, and it was called such and such. And I said, I'm sure that was you in it. <laughs> <laughs> could have been. Could have been. So, do they give you direction then? Sort of, they tell you what the character is, and then give you direction as you go on. Oh yeah, they definitely do, and they're very, very. They have a very specific idea of what they want so particularly with each line they they yeah you get you get a lot of direction it's very very helpful because otherwise you're left rather in the dark just sort of making random choices and seeing if anything sticks but they you know the thing about being an actor almost on almost everything really but with computer games specifically the chaps and uh, and lasses that have developed designed written produced these games have been working on them in some cases for three years and you're mm. the last thing that happens apart from a bit of post-production but basically you're the last bit of the jigsaw for them so they have been embedded in in the game as i say for two or three years working together in small groups in you know uh, animate getting the animation right writing the script getting that right understanding how the story is going to play and then suddenly you breeze in and and have to kind of voice a character which they which is very very close to their hearts because they've created them and and so yeah you just you hand yourself over to them and you just listen to what they want and you really try very hard to do what they want and get what they want because they've worked on it for so long and it's like this their baby mm. and do you interact with any other um actors when you're doing it sometimes you might it's difficult in a gaming situation because if there's any overlapping they can't they, so each line has to stand alone so that they can place it in the game. So normally what they do in those instances, is you'll have the script in front of you on a screen and they'll be highlighting it. And if they've already recorded the other character in the, in the scene, you'll say your line and they will play the, the recording into your ear and then you will respond to that. Right. The, the microphone that you're speaking to can't hear what the other line is so then it doesn't matter about overlapping if they haven't already recorded the other character then you 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 will just you'll say your line and then you'll you'll read the next line kind of in your head so you can see if someone's having a go at you then you can respond back you kind of have to imagine it mm. it's tricky but yeah it's it's uh it's a good challenge it's fun to do it's fascinating you, you we play a game when you don't sort of like 
you take all that sort of stuff for granted. Do you mm. know what I mean? You don't think that there's somebody toiling in a studio for hours and hours getting all those oohs and ahs and oh and stuff like that. <laughs> there you go. I think I was playing a game yesterday where I heard those sounds. That wasn't you, was it? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <That's>... Yeah, definitely <laughs> heard that one before. Right, we're going to have a little bit of a quiz now. Colin, oh, uh, we're going to play. Not any revision. Oh dear, we're going to play Kerry or Curtain. So I'm going to give you a line of dialogue. You have to tell me if yeah. it was Kerry. Yeah, Uncle, Trev. Uncle Trev said he got five out of five. I think he did. He? I think so. I think he did. I think yeah, he I did. Think so here we go. Here's number one. Go on. You told me you've been running in the evenings. You see, it's not very likely that Kerry would have been running, I don't think, or that she would even be pretending to do running. Whereas Curtin might have said, I'm starting to do some running now because I want to get fit for blah, blah. So I'm going to go with Kerry. That was Curtin. Oh! That was Curtin. That was That's when uh, when Kerry was uh, doing having double dinners. Oh, and she, and she mm. told Curtin that she'd been out running instead. <laughs> Number two. All he could bang on about was how his kids were left in the jungle. <laughs> oh, my word, that's tricky. Um, oh, what did you bang about when his kids were left in the jungle? Uh, Kerry. That was Kerry. Well done. Yes, that was oven space, that one. Uh, number three. Right, I'll get slugs over. He was in our class. He'll remember. That was definitely Kerry, because he says, and he goes, no, don't get slugs over. <laughs> we're all afternoon. No, that was Curtin. Oh, no, that was Curtin. <laughs> that was that was the, um, what was he called? Uh, Rob, Rob Robinson. Rob Robinson. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I'm on so, the Look, there he is. Your, your, thought, your thinking and your thought there was perfect. You just got the wrong person. more time. I should have taken more time You should one. have. You should have. Right, number four. Look at these aluminium combination ladders. <laughs> Christ. Um, look at these. That's got to be Curtin. That was Kerry. Oh, no. <laughs> that was when she got a screw fix catalogue for, for her birthday. Oh, and the well. final one. Uh, yeah, but also, have you ever seen the Raggy Dolls on CBBC? I say Kerry, it'll be Curtin. If I say Curtin, it's going to be Kerry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I sound like a Kerry. No, Curtin. It was Kerry. Oh. <laughs> One out of five. That's one, one out of five. <laughs> so that was just one finger out of five there uh, for Colin. Um, you, well, you'll have to face Trevor next time you see him and uh, let him lord it all over you. Uh, let's also talk. Uh, you, we spoke just before we went on air about your um, the podcast that you do. Now, yeah. we, I, I was looking on Twitter, and obviously you're a big Watford fan. I am. Um, I have been since I was about five. I was going to say I'm how long. And yes. uh, so is it because that's where you lived or a parent's thing or? Yeah, no, I lived there. I lived in a place called Northwood, which is about three miles from Watford as a, as a child with my mum and my two brothers and uh, who were much older than me. My oldest brother was a Chelsea fan because he, his best friend at school was a Chelsea fan. So they used to go up on a Saturday with, he used to go up with his friend and his friend's family on a Saturday. So he was a Chelsea fan. And uh, then my the, the the middle brother, if you like, the way he was seven years older than me, he wanted to go and watch Watford. So he wanted to go with his friend across the road. 
And so my mum went with them and so did my brother's friend's mum. So the four of them used to go. And then as I got older, when I say sort of five or six, by then my brother was in his teens and didn't want to go with his mum anymore, as you can imagine. So they used to go on their own. But by then my mum was so hooked, she wanted to go and she wouldn't go on her own because she felt embarrassed. So she said, right, you're coming. <laughs> so that was that. And then when I was when I was 18, when I finished school, she wanted to move away from there and she moved into central London and which is where she'd grown up and so I went with her and then I ended up living in North London but somehow managed to hold on to the uh to the Watford love and it's going still going strong and both my daughters come as well and we go away from home and so I, I I've been doing that for the last sort of seriously I guess for about five or six years and then um I met, we started to do this thing called Hornet Heaven. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that, yeah. A, a chap called Oliver Wickham wrote a story for uh, a publication, and he came up with this idea that uh, there was a heaven for Watford fans. So when you died, you woke up um, in Occupation Road, which is the little funny road that runs alongside Vicarage Road Stadium, and there's a huge atrium, which is all made of gold, and then people meet you, and you go in, and what you discover is that um, you're dead, <laughs> but you're in heaven, in Hornet heaven. And it means that every single program from every single game that Watford have ever played since 1881 is available to you. And you can take a program and you can go through this rusty old turnstile and you actually go to the game. So if you're playing Wrexham away in 1953, you're actually at Wrexham's at the race course ground and you can smell and hear you. They can't see you. The actual fans in in the in the ground can't see you. You're a ghost essentially. But you can experience the game. And equally, um, every time a, a current game is played, someone will shout, "Programs in!" and they'll all go and get one. And they'll go and watch uh, what happened at the weekend. We played Southampton away, so they're all gone and watched Southampton away. Now, he started this off as as a in a written format, and he said to me, "I don't know what to do with them really. Do you think I should should publish them as a book?" And I said, mm, "Publishing is so hard. It's really expensive and." Even self-publishing is hard. So I said, why don't you think about doing them as, a, as an audio thing, as a, like, as a podcast, basically? And he said, well, there's no such thing as a, a kind of short story podcast. I said, well, so what? You know, it doesn't matter if Watford fans will, some Watford fans will listen to you. So we started recording them, and he, there was a, uh, a producer guy called John. And so the three of us were working on it, and they started going out. People were absolutely, obviously only Watford fans, but they absolutely loved them. So he kept writing. I think he's written 36 episodes now, which we recorded. We might have come to the end because he he's, has been writing a lot over the past three years and he might he's thinking, I think I might need a break. But the guy, who uh, John, who produced, also produces a thing called From the Rookery End, which is a much more kind of um, a normal kind of sports podcast, which is just chaps talking into a microphone about what they've just watched. So right. we, we normally record it straight after a game. So a fan-based, uh, more of a fan-based. Yeah, there's, there's a sort of stable of about six of us that contribute. And so John will just pick whoever's available and say, right, we're going to meet here after the game. And then he also does things like he gets interviews with ex-managers or ex-players. And so the podcast is kind of multidimensional. You've got chats talking about the game that's just happened, talking about the game that's going to happen in the future, any transfers. And then you might have a, an interview with someone connected with the club in some way or the manager of the ladies' team, talk about how they're doing. And so, yeah, so it's a kind of magazine program, I suppose, like like a, like a, any sports podcast. Mm. It's really fun. I really enjoy doing it. It's great. Sounds brilliant. Um, Colin, as a fan of the show then, where would you like to see this country go in the next series? Ooh, what direction well, would you like to see them do? If anybody has noticed, um, 
in Trev's story, so it's just talk about Trev for a minute. No, but I'll, no, absolutely. I'll answer the larger question in a minute. Did anyone has anyone noticed that who Trev talks about? You know, when he says Sue. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, see, we had a conversation about it online uh, when the, the series went out, and and some people said that it wasn't Sue Mucklow. I think it is because they said they said that he's, she's a big girl. Yeah. She needed her own trailer or whatever it was. So, right. I, but, but then so big. Yeah. you just wonder whether the, the maths worked out in regards to, we're assuming that he's obviously, yeah, with, with Kerry and stuff, but I think it's Sue Mucklow. Is that, I'm assuming that's who you think it is. Well, it, it's totally uh, opaque. So it could be. Mm. And if they choose to make it her, then there's a potential connection between the character that I played, or there's some sort of way, you know, because if she was, and he's very, he's clearly very fond uh, of Martin Bullard, who, who's died, and he was very happy that they found love with each other in this, you know, uh, in this Wurlitzer cart. Yeah. So <laughs> there's there's a potential there that so that from from that he might come and and find her and talk to her or something, you know. But I mean, obviously, going up those stairs, he's probably never going to come down again alive. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of the show generally, I think they. I think they've sort of resolved the Kerry Martin story and that she's cured in some way. Although when he comes out, obviously that will create a whole mm. another set of circumstances. So where they can take it, obviously they've got millions of funny ideas, but in terms of the kind of the drive of, of another, what, six episodes or something, you think, well, what is it about Curtin finally deciding to go off and make something of his life or, does Kerry meet somebody uh, as sort of something serious, like a serious boyfriend, and you sort of see a future for her there? Mm. Because as they get older and they're still living the same sort of life, which is, of course, the basis of the whole idea, it does start to become very almost too poignant. Like you need to feel like their lives are going to move on in some way at some point, that they're not just going to be stuck wandering up and down yeah. <laughs> on her bike. And, and so maybe that might be something I don't know. I mean, they tried to him, they tried to get him to leave at the end of series one, and, yeah. and it was just too heartbreaking. So they said, "All right, all right I won't go, I won't go," <laughs> which I think was the right choice because I think Curtin's character is, has developed really quite beautifully uh, in the in the two series and during the aftermath. In, in that he's there's something quite sensitive about him, sensitive to other people. He's mm. like like that lovely episode with the the vicar's son. And when the vicar gets upset at the end and he, he sort of puts his arm around him and there's just the kind of mature, the character's maturing. Yeah. Uh, Daisy's character is going in a different, <laughs> in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's something there. There's something that they can, you can't just, I don't think they can just keep going. Just no. In funny stories. They've got to have a kind of driving uh, story, a kind of driving narrative through a whole series. And it'll have to be about either, Curtin, I, th- I would think maybe something like Curtin going to college or or Kerry meeting some falling in love because mm. now she's no longer in love with her dad. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting whether she actually learns anything from it or as soon as Martin's back out, her and Sandra just go back to type and just fall under his spell again. It's yeah, I that- mean that's a very very good point. I think people who are bullies, when you remove them, people can live without without it but then once you put them back in it how how do they not resist being drawn back under his spell yeah it's It's fascinating (coughs) it's fascinating 
Colin, thank you very much for spending some time with us. It's been a real absolute pleasure. It really it's has. Been really well, good. Much. It's been an absolute pleasure being on it. I was really, really looking forward to it all day. So, oh, well, that's, oh, that's great. I'm sorry, so we. I'm sorry we couldn't have got a better score for you for the Kerry or Curtain, but that doesn't matter. Next time. Next. I hope to see you guys. I hope to meet you guys in the flesh soon. Well, let's That'd hope so. That would be really so. nice, Colin. That Absolutely. Would be really Whenever nice. you're in the Cotswolds, there is a little space in our little studio here for you, and you can come and visit us, and uh, and we can press flesh, I was going to say. Well, that yeah, sounds that, very... That doesn't sound good. In the it? Me Too movement, we shouldn't be saying things like yeah. that, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, Neil, do you want to do a little sorry, bit of housekeeping? Oh, sorry, Colin, you were going to say? Just going to say, yeah, take care, guys. Oh, thank right. you. Yeah, um, yes, absolutely. You can find us on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, under WTAF. This country. You can email us at WTAFthiscountry at hotmail.com. We have a Patreon pledge uh, reward system going at patreon.com forward slash WTAF. Indeed, and I have to give uh, Luke Tyrell uh, a shout out for being the latest uh, Patreon donator. So thank you very much, Luke. Yes, thank you, Luke. Uh, and all the other information you can find, uh, merch, um, information about the live show, unfortunately it's all sold out, uh, at WTAFpodcast.com. Yes. So there you go. Thank you once again, Colin. Yes, thank you, Colin. Thank you, and uh, good luck next time on the bill. Oh, I know the bill's not even on anymore, is it? I don't think. No, I think that's been gone a while. (laughs) Or whatever it is that you're doing in the future. Uh, Good luck. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you very much, Pav. And thank you very much, everyone else. And go and get plumbed, you fuckers. Scarecrow Festival is like the most important day of the year. This is just ridiculous. What the actual fuck? Hi, I'm Pav. I'm Neil. We're here to tell you about our new exciting project, the Top 10 of Anything podcast. Phenomenal. That's right, Neil. We grab a guest or two, pick a subject, then bring our own Top 10s to the pod. Yes. It could be Top 10 scary movies, Top 10 swear words, Top 10 breakfast foods, anything. Oh, you saucy devil. Indeed, Neil. Our first episode will be online very soon, so subscribe on all your usual podcast platforms so you don't miss it. Yes. The Top 10 of Anything podcast. Let's begin the countdown. Phenomenal. Phenomenal.